Good morning. morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome you. It's so good to worship with you. Um, My name is is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the the elders here at River Oaks. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Acts uh, for about the last nine months or so. Uh, just looking at, at uh, Luke's account of the early church, of what happened after Jesus was crucified, risen, and ascended into heaven, and he sent his spirit to his people. And he told them early in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in our passage Today, and really the section of Acts that we've been looking at over the last uh, about six weeks or so, we're seeing that, that really start to, to flourish. Um, Acts chapters 13 and 14 are known as the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, where really they, they brought the gospel to uh, the island of Cyprus and then up into what was known as the region of Galatia. Uh, and our passage today is summarizing that mission. So they fulfilled their mission. They're at the end. And they're going to travel back through uh, from Derby, which was their last stop, back the way they came. And all these churches that they've planted, these new communities that they've started, they're going to go and, and, and strengthen those and really make sure that those churches flourish after they're gone. So let's read this kind of summary of Paul's missionary journey (laughs) and the report he gives back to his home, kind of sending church in Antioch. So let's read Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21, which takes place in the city of Derbe. Luke says, through the Holy Spirit, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. (laughs) And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your holy word. We thank you that every single word and every sentence is breathed out by your Holy Spirit and it is profitable for teaching and correction, reproof and training in righteousness. So pray that your Holy Spirit would train us now. We commit this time to you and ask that you would open up the glories of this text to strengthen our souls, to glorify your name. (laughs) We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In every one of us, there is a deep 
need for significance. We want to be involved with something that's bigger than ourselves. We want to build something that will last, that will leave a legacy. We want to spend our lives on something that, that actually matters, that has weight, that has significance. And when it comes to building something that lasts, something important, let's just think, for example, about building a, a, a physical home. Modern homes are, are, are built to last roughly around 70 to 100 years. They can, of course, last longer than that, but on average, about, about, about 100 years is what you're going to get. So they certainly do the job but they're not built to last. Contrast that with, with this building. This is the St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague in the Czech Republic. Construction began on this cathedral in the year 1344. Any guesses on when it was completed? You can talk. Well, what century? 15th? Here, not a lot. 15th, 16th, 20th. <laughs> Rich, if I could give you a prize, I'd give it to you, Rich. So, <laughs> so, construction started in 1344. It wasn't completed until 1929. Now, there were times when the work stalled because funding had dried up or wars had broke out. But it took a total of almost 600 years to complete this massive structure. Now, I want you to imagine that you're in the 16th or 17th century, right in the middle of this building process. It started hundreds of years before you were born. It won't be completed until hundreds of years after you're gone. And you may have been doing what seemed to you seemingly insignificant work. Maybe you're a you're a stonemason or you're a carpenter. But you were working on something significant. You were building a stunningly beautiful worship space for your great-great-grandchildren to worship in. Now that's a significant building project. But even it pales in comparison to the building project that we find in the Word of God and in our passage this morning. The Lord Jesus didn't say, I will build my cathedral that will last for centuries or even millennia. He said, I will build my church. And that church will last for eternity. He came to reign as king forever over a kingdom that would have no end. So what we see in our passage today is this glorious truth, that Christ is building his church and he invites us to build with him. Christ is building his church, and we are invited to join that work with him, to build with him. Just look at our passage. Uh, in verses 26 through 27, this is when Paul and Barnabas, they come back after uh, probably about a year or two to their home church, and they give a report on all that had happened in their journeys. In verse... 26 it says, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Okay, so what happened there? They were commended to God's grace. They desperately needed God's help in this work. But it says 
the work that they had fulfilled, that Paul and Barnabas had fulfilled. This is very similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't I. It was the grace of God that was within me. It says, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So God is the one opening this door of faith to the nations. And it says all that God had done with them, not even through them, but with them. That is astounding language. Paul kind of further lays out this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, where he's describing his ministry. And he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. That's amazing. He's saying we work, we plant, we water, we receive wages according to our labor. But ultimately, we are nothing to talk about. We are nothing to write home about. It is God and God alone who gives the growth. And he says there at the end, we are God's fellow workers. We are his co-laborers. We work together with the sovereign Lord of creation in the accomplishment of his divine purpose. That is an incomprehensible privilege that should absolutely blow your mind. So yes, Paul was a church planting missionary who started these new Christian communities everywhere he went. But ultimately, it is Jesus Christ himself who is the true church planter, who is the builder of the church. And it's not as if he needs us. He certainly doesn't. But in his grace, he has chosen to use us as his instruments to build his ever-growing, unstoppable, international, multi-generational church. And we are invited to join him. We're invited to join him. This is the most worthy cause you can spend your life on. But what do you think of when you think of the word church? Because some of you may be thinking, what on earth are you talking about? The church is just a place I go to for a few hours, and yeah, it's good. It gives me kind of a spiritual pick-me-up, but it doesn't feel that significant. And we, we can very easily treat church like we do other aspects of our lives. You know, I don't like my internet service, so I'm going to change providers I don't like this streaming service. I'm going to change providers. I don't really like this church service. So I'm going to change providers. We can very easily treat the church of Jesus Christ like an insignificant add-on to our lives. And if that's you, I'm going to show you what God and his word actually has to say about the church. What should come to our minds when we hear the word church. Because the church is the people of God. And God's plan and purpose from before the foundation of the world was that he would claim a people for himself purchased through the blood of his son. The scripture says that the church is the bride. 
and Christ is the groom. The church is the body and Christ is the head. The church is the flock and Christ is the shepherd. The church is the army and Christ is the captain. The church is the temple and Christ is the cornerstone. The church is the royal priesthood and Christ is the great high priest. The church is a holy nation and Christ is its chief sovereign. The church is the family of God and Christ is our elder brother and his father is our father. The church is cosmically significant because its head, Jesus Christ, is cosmically significant. The most significant being to ever exist. Therefore, even the smallest act of obedience in his church is of eternal significance. It's amazing that we are invited to join our Savior King in building his church. So how was that accomplished? What does the, the job actually look like? If Christ invites us to join him in building his church, what does that building project entail? Thankfully, Paul gives us a great example to follow in his return trip in verses 21 through 23. And we can really break this down into kind of three ways or three methods that we can work with Christ and Christ can work through us to build the church. And that happens through gospel preaching, disciple making, and pastoral oversight. We'll look at these one by one. <laughs> but this passage shows us what our role, what our job, what our function should be in this body, in this fellowship at River Oaks. In many ways, this passage fo functions as a manual for missionary work. That's kind of church planting 101. This text shows us the basics of planting a church. Preach the gospel, make disciples, appoint elders. This is very instructive for us as a church as we desire the gospel to go to all nations. We want to partner and support missionaries in going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And some of you, the Lord might be working to kind of uproot you out of the comforts of home and send you to the ends of the earth to bring good news. Just let this text work on you. It's also instructive for us as we think about church planting, right? As we're kind of starting to come out of, um, you know, the weird year, year and a half that we've had being kind of shut down. We want to start thinking about planting other churches. And ultimately, just by God's grace and power, how amazing would it be to have churches planted all over Blunt County, all over these kind of three counties that proclaim the whole counsel of God. To have the knowledge of God's glory cover East Tennessee like the waters cover the sea. Remember that Jesus Christ is the true church planter. So we want to get on board with his agenda, with what he's doing. So these verses are extremely insightful. And they begin with gospel preaching. <laughs> Look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's the city of Derby, and had made many disciples, 
they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. In this divine building project, gospel preaching, evangelism, proclaiming Jesus Christ to the lost, that is foundational. That is laying the foundation. The church is made up of redeemed sinners. So those sinners need to hear about Jesus. The most eternally significant way that you can spend your life is to bring the message of salvation to eternal souls. The church is built as the gospel is proclaimed. And disciples are added to the church. And men and women and children repent of their sins, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how comprehensive this is. It says that Paul preached the gospel to that city. Not just to a few individuals here and there, but to the community at large. Paul and Barnabas went into each new city as heralds or or town criers, making a public pronouncement to everyone that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's as if they they walked into town and, and planted a flag in the ground, claiming the territory for Jesus, saying this is Jesus's land. This is Jesus' city. He purchased it with the cost of his own blood, and he is now your king to whom you must bow your knee. If you submit to his kingship, he will give you a royal pardon and receive you with joy into his kingdom. If you spurn his rule, you will be destroyed in your rebellion. And when I talk to those of you who may not know Jesus, you you haven't put your faith in him, that We are not calling you to to make Jesus your Lord. He is your Lord. Whether you know it or not, whether you even like it or not, Jesus is your master. He is your king. And he calls on you to bow your knee to him. But he's not just your king. He's a savior. And he suffered and died and bled for your pardon, for your forgiveness. So humble yourself now and confess him as your king, as your highest authority and follow him and put your faith in his blood. Paul would later write to these same Christians in his letter to the Galatians. And in chapter three, verse one of that letter, Paul said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In the ancient world, there was something called mystery religions. These were very popular. They were kind of private cult-like groups who had secret mystical initiation rites, and everything they did was behind closed doors and very hush-hush. And Christianity emerged into this religious scene, but it was strikingly different. Christianity wasn't a secret society or a private club with their own special handshakes and secret passwords to get in. No, the church from the very beginning was a community united by the mission to make Jesus Christ known throughout the whole world. Proclaiming the gospel is publicly portraying Jesus Christ as crucified. So that is our mission. That is your mission. 
Preaching the gospel to our city, it's not the job of full-time ministers. It's the job of every Christian. The task is too large for just a few people to accomplish. We need believers in every sphere of life to bring gospel saturation right here. And this is why God has placed you in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in your university, in your family. He placed you there to make Jesus Christ known. So are you doing that? Are you fulfilling the mission? Are you making Christ known where you're at, wherever you're at? Are you taking the gospel and going public with it? And you may be thinking, I want to. I really do, but I don't really know how. I don't know what to say. We have a lot of opportunities for you. Next month, we're going to have a training weekend all about evangelism, all about how to talk about Jesus with the lost. Come to that. We will help you. We have opportunities to go into places like the jail or assisted living. You could come in. You can learn from people who have done that for a long time and see their examples and and go in and bring the gospel into those places that desperately need it. Talk to myself or Kevin Fowler about that if you're interested. And in our daily lives, how do we share the gospel with the people that God has placed around us in just a typical, ordinary day? We get some practical help in verse 24 and 25. This can be easy to miss in the passage. There's a little phrase in here that's beautiful. It says, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. I love that little phrase. They were speaking the word. Christian, you have the word of God. God's word has power to destroy strongholds of unbelief. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. So invite someone to read the Bible with you. It can be as simple as that. Just invite someone to read through one of the four Gospels, the life of Jesus, over a period of a few weeks, and talk to them about it. The word is powerful. Have scripture memorized so that you can season your conversations with the words of God. Be ready with the Bible. It's a powerful weapon. A weapon that brings healing to the nations and to our neighbors. And as we preach the gospel, we pray for the lost to be saved. And when the Lord saves them, we often think that that's the end of the journey. Right? I've been praying for them. I've been sharing with them. And now they're saved. That's it. But it's actually just the beginning. It's just the beginning. And that's where our next point comes in. So Christ builds his church through gospel preaching, but also through disciple making. We see this also in verses 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, all cities that Paul's already planted a church in, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Getting saved is just the beginning of the Christian life. There is a lot of time normally between your baptism and your funeral. And that time is meant by God for your growth in godliness. Our aim as a church is to present everyone mature in Christ. Our goal is for each one of us to grow up in every way into Christ. God's purpose for us is that we would be more and more conformed into the image of his beloved son. That's what the Bible calls discipleship. Our Lord told us to go and make disciples of every nation. Not merely go and make converts, go and make disciples. And each one of us is both a disciple and a disciple maker. We need to disciple others and we need discipleship. As disciples, we need other believers to help us grow. And as disciple makers, we need to help other people grow in their faith and their obedience to Christ. And in verse 22, Paul lays out really his, his, his method of discipleship. First, it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples. He was strengthening their souls. That is just a fitting description or overview of discipleship. A saved soul is not necessarily a strong soul. The Christian life can be filled with doubts, with difficulties, with discouragements. You can feel attacked by Satan's accusations or by the world's opposition or by the guilt of your own sin. We need our souls to be strengthened. We need friends like David had in Jonathan, who, when Saul was pursuing David to death, it says that he came and strengthened his hand in God. But how do we do that? How do we do this strengthening ministry with one another? Well, Paul shows us with the next two phrases, with the rest of what he does. First, it says he encouraged them to continue in the faith. He encouraged them to continue in the faith. Notice it doesn't say faith or their faith. He encouraged them to continue in the faith. So this is not merely about their need to keep believing, to keep trusting with their personal faith, though that's included. But he's talking about continuing in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is the message of the gospel itself. The phrase is extremely similar to Paul's words in chapter 13, verse 43, where Paul urged them to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the faith, continue in God's grace. Again, just a great summary statement that, that our souls are strengthened when we continue and abide and remain steadfastly in the faith, in the gospel, in God's grace. It's been said that the gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. That we need the gospel from first to last. It isn't something that just gets us saved and then we move on to bigger and better things. There are no bigger and better things than what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We're about to sing a song that says, Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary. Do you realize that there are things that happened on Calvary's cross that we have no idea about. There are depths. 
depths that have never been plumbed. That should humble us and excite us. We want to go deeper and deeper into that glory. Because we, we need that gospel every day to strengthen our souls. So what do we need when our souls are weak? What do we need when our souls are faint or when our souls feel cold and dry? We need fresh reminders of Christ. We need to be refreshed in who he is and what he's done for us. We need to warm our souls by the fire of Christ's bleeding love for us. Like in Isaiah 12 from our call to worship, it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We need to draw water again and again to drink that refreshing, joyful grace of God. So we need to continue in the faith, to continue in the grace of God. And we also need to strengthen one another's souls by preparing each other for kingdom challenges, for difficulties. <laughs> Paul encouraged them by saying, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The life of a disciple is not easy. It's joyful, but it is not easy. There are many obstacles, many foes, many difficulties, and many tribulations. And don't let end times books and movies confuse that, that phrase for you. The word tribulation simply means something that's heavy, something that's crushing, that, that weighs you down. And the path of a Christian is a path with heavy, weighty burdens. Remember, Paul was saying this. Paul, the one who was just stoned to death and didn't die. Can you imagine these new Christians gathering around Paul who's just beaten, bloodied, bruised, and he tells them, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. He wasn't saying these things from his ivory tower. He wasn't saying these things from his lazy boy watching TV with a cold beverage. He was saying these things covered in fresh battle scars of the gospel ministry. Paul was a living testimony of many tribulations just through this one missionary journey. Think about it. He was opposed by a sorcerer in Cyprus. When's the last time any of you came to growth group and said, hey, can you pray for me? There's a wizard who's really mad at me for sharing the gospel. And that was just how it started off. He was reviled and persecuted in Antioch and kicked out of town. He was slandered in Iconium where they tried to stone him. And he was slandered in Lystra where they really did stone him. All of this, Paul says, is what life is like in the kingdom. This is how we enter the kingdom. And remember that the kingdom of God, it is not far off. It's not future. It's now. Yes, we await the consummation of the kingdom, but it's been inaugurated. Christ is King and Lord now. So Christ's kingdom will ultimately triumph, but we aren't triumphalistic. We don't take a leisurely stroll into victory. There will be many dangers on the king's victory march. And that's why we need this encouragement. Paul wasn't discouraging them with these words by saying all these bad things that are going to happen to you. This was encouragement. 
He's showing them what to expect, that suffering wasn't unusual, that this is actually how the kingdom advances. And our troubles probably won't look like Paul's. Again, we don't have a lot of wizards running around. You probably won't be stoned to death. You won't be beaten with rods. You won't be put in prison. But you might lose your job. You might lose your reputation. You might lose a relationship or a social standing. But that's how the kingdom advances. And, and your weaknesses don't disqualify you. Not at all. Right? God shows his power through our weakness. Paul is a living testimony to that. Tribulation is a design feature, not a defect. This is how the kingdom advances. There was a bishop in the Church of England who once said, everywhere the Apostle Paul went, there was a riot. And everywhere I go, they serve tea. What does your life look like? Does it resemble a riot or a tea party? Because really, either way, if you are a faithful Christian in this hostile culture, sooner or later, trials and tribulations will come. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's why we need each other we need to strengthen one another's souls. We need other people to help us prepare for these difficulties and to walk through them faithfully. We need to encourage each other with the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You need people in your life who can encourage you with the truth of God's word and strengthen your soul. And you need to be a soul strengthener for other people. We can't do this on our own. There are people in this church who need you to point them again and again to the gospel. There are people in this church who need your support and your encouragement as they walk through difficult challenges. If you don't already, find someone that you can meet with one-on-one -on -one or this a small group to mutually strengthen one another in the Lord. If you haven't already, get involved in a growth group. Right? If if Jason didn't convince you, I'm not going to be able to. <laughs> Verse 22 is a great summary of what we do in growth group. Strengthening each other's souls, continuing in the faith, preparing for tribulations. So we can work with Christ to build the church through gospel preaching and through disciple making. And finally, through pastoral oversight, which we see in verse 23. So after they preached the gospel, after they made disciples, encouraged them, strengthened them, it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The church is born through evangelistic gospel preaching. The church grows through mutual discipleship and disciple-making. And the church is set in order and protected through pastoral oversight. 
Paul was going to leave these new churches on their own. They were going to be all by themselves. And they needed strong, mature men to lead them, to teach them, to be examples for them, to watch over them. These churches needed elders. And Luke doesn't tell us exactly what this process looked like, but they appointed elders. They prayed and they fasted and they committed them ultimately to the Lord, who is the chief shepherd of the flock, who is the true head of the church. Elders are the shepherds. They're the overseers. They're the teachers of God's people. They're mature Christians who can serve as exemplary servant leaders to God's people. They're guardians who protect the church from false teaching and teachers who instruct in sound doctrine. They are ministers who comfort the afflicted. They're leaders who guide the church on their mission. But they are not ministry professionals. They are not the ones who do all the work of the kingdom. Now, think back to our study in Ephesians. In chapter 4, Paul said that the risen Christ gave gifts to the church. One of those gifts is shepherd teachers. And their job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. An elder's job is to help each member of the church fulfill their ministry so that the church as a whole can fulfill the Great Commission. And you know what's amazing? We don't know it for sure, but... but Scholars estimate that this missionary journey in, in chapter 13 and 14 took around one to two years. Which means there were elder qualified men in these churches in that short of a span of time. So I want to talk to all of you, but especially the men. This should be your goal. Not that you would all be elders, right? Not every sheep is called to be a shepherd, so not that you would all be elders, but that you would all be kind of elder material, so to speak. I want you to spend time this week reading through the description of elders in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus chapter 1, and pray through that. Ask the Lord to make you that kind of man. Trust me, we elders go to those texts all the time asking the Lord to help us. We feel inadequate. And I want to speak especially to you young men in your teens and your 20s and your 30s. Because in Acts 16 verse 1, we see Timothy come into the picture for the first time. And Timothy came from this region. He was from that area of Lystra and Derby, And he became kind of Paul's protege. And Paul became his mentor. And he would take up the work after Paul was gone. Paul actually told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, he said, what I've entrusted with you you entrust to other faithful men who can pass it on also just to keep the work going. So the Lord may not call you to the eldership. He may not call you into any kind of a full-time ministry role, nothing like that. But imagine spending the next few decades of your life growing in the skills, growing in the character qualities of an elder. And in your retirement years, you could serve the Lord in amazing ways. Yes, we have, you know, we're praying about an initial church plan, but imagine 30 years. If the Lord wills, we could be planting churches all over this area. We need leaders. We need pastors to oversee those churches. So that might not be you now, but that could be you in, in a few decades. 
To you older men and women who maybe in the empty nest years or the retirement years, now you may think, what do I have to offer? How do I finish well? Well, you have walked with the Lord for many years. You have been in his word for years. You have so much to offer. There are those of us who are younger and who need to hear about the, the challenges and the difficulties that you faced and how you walked through those and how the Lord was faithful. We need that. And for all of you, and I know I speak for all the elders when I say this, pray for us. Pray for us. Verse 23 says that they committed them to the Lord with prayer and fasting. And Satan loves to attack the flock by attacking the shepherds. So please pray for us. Christ is building his church. And he invites us to build with him through gospel preaching, through disciple making, and through pastoral oversight. In 1929, when the centuries-long construction of the St. Vitus Cathedral was finally finished, the city of Prague was filled with excitement and celebration and joy as they formally completed this work and there was a, there was a solemn consecration of the building. But how much more excitement and how much more celebration and joy will fill our hearts when one day the Great Commission is fulfilled. Every nation is discipled. Every enemy is subdued. And the mission of God, the kingdom of God, the church of God is finally complete. On that day, we will all be gathered around the throne of Christ and we will sing a new song saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we give you all the glory. We thank you that this is your glorious and holy purpose in the earth, that you would magnify your name through a redeemed people and that no one can stop your purpose. We thank you that you, Jesus Christ, will build your church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We thank you that, Lamb of God, you have purchased a people for yourself from every tribe and every nation and every language and every people. Not one of your precious drops of blood will be wasted. Your church will be built. So, Father, help us. Help us to be faithful to you now. Help us to work with you to build this church and accomplish these purposes and advance your kingdom now. Help us to walk in obedience. We ask this for the glory of your great name and in the name of your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.